Wonderful. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you again for gathering us here today. We pray, God, that you would uh, work in us and transform us through your word. Lord, would what you speak in your scriptures influence and inform our lives and our relationships and our marriages that we're talking about today. So, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to come, uh, be on this place, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so the bulletin has Pastor Allison, and, you know, I'm the other half. We are talking about marriage today, and so we have a unique opportunity, I think, that occasionally when there's sermon topics like this, we can do stuff together, right? Mm -hmm. And she's okay with that. I didn't force her. Um, you know, and we're, we're not sitting too close together to make you uncomfortable this morning. Uh, they would say, leave room for Jesus, right? I think Jesus has enough room to stand here and put, put his arms on both of our shoulders, right? So we are talking about marriage today. This is part of our continuing series on the old, the new, and the you, and how God's uh, authority in scriptures influences our lives and calls us to live under his authority um, rather than just kind of go our own way. And part of that is knowing what God actually says in the scriptures. So there's a lot of different things we could talk about in this series. There's a few things that we felt were really important to touch on in this series, in this season of our culture, of our lives, of our church. And today we're just talking specifically about marriage. <coughs> so digging in, uh, the foundation for marriage in the Old Testament, we've touched on that already. We touched on that when we talked about Genesis 1 and creation. Uh, God sets the foundation for what we know today as a biblical marriage uh, in Genesis. Genesis 1, 27 and 28, he says this, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And then in Genesis 2, verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now that word united in the Hebrew is an important word. Uh, it's debak, I believe, is how you pronounce it in the Hebrew, and that means to cleave, to cleave. Uh, and that means to be joined together, to cling to one another. Now this word cleave isn't the part that talks about becoming one flesh. That's not the physical intimacy part of marriage. But it's more of the mentality and the posture that you are, you are cleaving to this person, you are living life with them. Uh, cleaving is more about kinship. It's really more about uh, an inseparable bond and a relationship. And it's about forming a family. This word can be used to describe cleaving to close friends or even cleaving to God in our relationship with him. So therefore, marriage is all about God bringing male and female together. It's all about forming a family uh, it's all about the intimacy of physical union. Um, and I just want to say, not everybody is able to have children. So when I say forming a family, a husband and wife together are a family, and they're part of a family, um, even if you are not able to have children, or if that's not a desire of yours to have children as well. So when I say family, that's what I mean. I don't mean you necessarily have to have kids to, have, to be part of that family. Um, so as we discussed at length in our sermon on creation back in January, uh, and God's natural order for things, God's design is that male and female find a unique bond and companionship that is not replicable or reproduced by any other thing that God created. If you remember the story in Genesis 2, uh, God is bringing animals to Adam, one by them, and he's naming those animals, but there is not a suitable helper that is found. And that's when God creates Eve. That's when God creates female. God designs male and female to find that unique bond in and through each other, and in no other place can that be found. 
And this speaks to that contrast that we talked about in Scripture, this dichotomy, right? Darkness and light, uh, land and waters, day and night, male and female. There's this dichotomy between what God creates. There's this balance that's part of the natural order of things that God has created uh, our world to be like and to live like. And so in this context and in this contrast, male and female are charged with the blessing to be fruitful and to multiply. Now, this creation narrative also sets the foundation for God's authority and scriptures in the area of marriage, right? Everything that flows from this point builds on what was started in Genesis. There is no law, there is no directive from God in any of the Old or New Testament books that contradicts or undermines what God started in Genesis 1 and 2. Nothing exists in the scripture to undermine or contradict that. And that's really important for us to understand This foundation is how God's people, how Israel understood marriage. It's how they were to be set apart from the countries, the nations around them that lived life in a very different way and did not honor the same things that God honored. They were to have this sacredness in the value of marriage. They were to honor it in a way that other people outside of God's truth did not honor it. And into the Gospels with Jesus, Jesus carries on the same mentality and the writings of the early church that we have in the New Testament, the same thread continues all throughout, that marriage from Genesis 1 is the same thing. It is sacred, it is holy, and it is pleasing to God. And the Bible offers no definition of marriage and blesses no idea of marriage outside of what God created in the natural order in Genesis. Right, so then let's go back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament times, and what marriage looked like um, during that time in ancient Israel. Well, weddings back then looked very different than they do today. If you've been to a wedding, if you are married, ever planned a wedding, um, it looks nothing like that. Um, Back then, um, husband and wife were negotiated uh, between a groom's father and the bride's father. So it was basically an arranged marriage that was based upon social and economic status. And the bride was to remain a virgin until she um, came to her husband on their wedding day. Um, If the families came to an agreement, then the groom would pay a bride price um, for that bride. It could be a cow or um, a goat or a piece of land or just with gold or silver. And then so the, the arrangement would be made and the father and the groom would leave and go back home and the groom would begin preparing a, a chamber, as you would, or a honeymoon suite build on, built onto the father's house. And the bride would stay at her home and she would be veiled to show that she was off the market, kind of like how we have engagement rings that would show like, oh, they're betrothed to someone. Um, they're planning to get married. And the day of the wedding was not necessarily set in stone. It could be a year, it could be two years. While the chamber and the home for the wife uh, and the husband were being prepared, um, the day would come when the groom and the husband would say, okay, we're ready, things are ready. And they would have a group of people go to the bride's house and blow a shofar horn, and the bride would be like, okay, it's time to get married. And she would put on her wedding stuff, and then a whole crowd of people would march through the streets to the groom's new home, and there would be shouting and trumpets and horns, and, 
And then the wedding would be consummated in the honeymoon suite. And then afterwards, everyone would hang out for a week and they would celebrate. And that's what weddings were like back then. Yeah, could I take a quick poll? How many of you would love to have your wedding night in a small edition on your parents' house? <laughs> that's what I thought. Just <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's literally what it was. That, that's literally right. what it was, right? And there was somebody who would stand outside the honeymoon suite and make sure that things took place, and afterwards they would all party all week long. Um, but um, the, the important thing coming out of this is the idea that marriage was a ceremony based on becoming one flesh. Um, one flesh wasn't just about physical connection. It was about becoming that family. Um, as it said, like the daughter leaves her father's and mother's home in order to um, go and live with her husband. It was this kinship forming thing. It was a one flesh of physical connection, but also about spiritual, financial, um, mentally, emotionally. You are one. You are connection, connected. And so the marriage ceremony was really focused on becoming one flesh. And so that means that marriage and physical union are tied together, and it should take place within marriage and not outside of it. Um, in Exodus 22, it speaks to this, um, verses 16 through 17, it says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must then pay the bride price, and she shall become his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give him to her, um, then he must still pay the bride price for her. And this was a way to protect women. A lot of people would think, well, shame on that woman for that happening. It would cause shame on her and her family. And really, this was a way to protect women um, so, that, so that they would have um, status and have um, financial stability and a husband coming from that. But it would also prevent a man from um, seducing a woman um, in order to claim her as um, his own. And so this theme of becoming one flesh um, is a theme throughout the Old Testament that would literally bind you to that person, and essentially you would be married. And so what does God have to do with this? What, does God, what is God's view of marriage? And in order to understand God's view of marriage, we have to understand what covenant means. And maybe you've heard that word covenant. We had a sermon not too long ago. It was the recorded one um, we had about covenant. And so a covenant, it's an agreement between two parties um, where one or more people make promises under oath um, with some sort of sign or reminder of this promise. And those promises or oaths were um, how you would either perform or refrain from certain actions, and all of this would be laid out in advance. And when you read through the Old Testament, we see covenants taking place all over the place between God and certain people, or God and his people. Um, in the story of Noah, we see that God makes an oath and a vow to um, Noah and his family that um, whenever a rainbow is in the sky, that's the sign. It's a sign of the promise that he would never flood the earth again and destroy humanity. Or the oath, sign, and vow from Jesus to us in the new covenant is the promise of the forgiveness of sin, and then the physical oath sign is his death, um, his body, um, the shedding of his blood for us. And now every time we come together to take communion, we are remembering that 
that promise of forgiveness. And so a covenant is not like a contract. When you think of a contract and the agreement between two people, um, you might think of like buying a house or buying a car or getting a loan. Um, but though they sound similar, a covenant involves something different, and that is love. And that's agape love. Um, there's four kinds of love. There is eros, which is romantic love, philea, which is friendship love, storge, which is like familial, affectionate love, and then agape love, which is other-oriented, um, not self-oriented, but focused on being self-sacrificial type of love. And a lot of people in weddings will choose this passage from 1 Corinthians 13 that talks about love, um, that says that love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, um, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And this is that definition of agape love. And this agape love should define all of our other types of relationships, whether it's a romantic one, a friendship one, um, a familial love, this idea of self sacrificing your self-sacrificial love and too often marriages are are treated like a contract where we agree to this we make a vow we sign a piece of paper and we move on with life when marriage is actually about this agape self-sacrificial love um, that jesus demonstrated to us um, and that we should carry out as husband and wife in our covenant marriage our relationship to one another and so God's vision of marriage covenant, then, is a committed kinship or family-creating agape love relationship. Um, so it's between a husband, a wife, and God. Um, it's expressed in specific terms that you give in your vows. It's grounded in promises of faith and faithfulness. Um, normally, we would put on, um, in a wedding, you'd put on your ring as a sign of your faith and your faithfulness to that person. And then it would be sealed with an oath sign. And this is the part that creates the covenant relationship. And according to scripture, that oath sign is the ongoing visible representation and reminder of the physical union of becoming one flesh between a husband and wife. Um, and so violating that sign or break is like breaking that covenant. And this is why um, adultery is so looked down upon in scripture because it's literally breaking the marriage vow and marriage oath sign that you commit to. Um, it's breaking that marriage covenant. And so this covenant then is meant to provide partners with a blessing of relationship, um, one of identity and belonging, of community, safety, loyalty, and purpose, calling, legacy, destiny as a couple. And this connects all the way back to Genesis with Adam and Eve when God gives them a purpose to um, become one flesh and be fruitful and multiply and he will fill the earth and do good things at this time. Um, so in our culture today, I'm sure we all know that things function a little bit backwards from the way God designed it to happen in marriage. Um, where God designed physical union and intimacy to take place between a husband and wife, our culture has flipped it around and making the physical stuff the precursor to marriage. Um, and so we need to think of it 
um, in this way. Um, in a marriage, physical union functions like a signature does on a check. Um, hopefully you still use checks around here. Um, but um, it's like signing a check, and if you sign it, um, it's saying, I'm committed to you, I, I'm giving myself to you, it's like, a, it's your marriage covenant, it's your covenant oath sign. But if you sign that check without the covenant, then you're giving yourself into that physical union before a vow is even made. And it's kind of like signing a check with no bank account, um, or no money in that account. Um, think of the story of Mary and Joseph. They were betrothed they were engaged to be married. They'd already gone through that process. Uh, and then she became pregnant with the Holy Spirit, and Joseph was going to secretly divorce her. And so they took engagement so seriously that even to break off an engagement, you would have to seek a divorce um, from that person, um, a certificate of divorce to break off that engagement. And so our culture very much focuses on the eros love, the romantic love first, and the union prior to the commitment of marriage. And so according to scripture, um, giving into that physical union is like half of the marriage covenant. You've already signed it, and now you need to make that vow and commitment together. And so in 1 Corinthians 6, 16 through 19, it actually talks about how anyone who comes together as one flesh, it's like saying a covenantal, I do to that person with your body, and how we are to honor God with our bodies because they are a gift of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean for us? Maybe, um, maybe you have become one flesh prior to your marriage, or with several other people prior to your marriage. I think this is where we have to ask Jesus to enter into our story and move on to um, our New Testament understanding of what Jesus has to say. Right, so that builds a good Old Testament foundation, and the New Testament gives some teaching on marriage as well, right? And again, it harmonizes with all that God has revealed and said through the Old Testament and through Genesis. And I think one of the best passages to illustrate our understanding of marriage and what that looks like on the sacrificial part uh, comes out of Ephesians 5, starting with verse 21, says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husband, yourselves as your own husbands. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husband in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So there's, you know, some, some people will read this and say, oh, the, the man is the head or the Lord over the woman. That's not what this is saying. Um, submitting is not uh, the same as our submission to God, who is the Lord of our lives. Submitting is an act of humility in a marriage. Um, husbands are actually called to love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a high calling, right? That's an impressive calling. It's an impressive encouragement for us within our relationships, within our marriages. And you're both supposed to submit to one another, it says. Not just the wives submitting to the husband, but submitting to each other. So uh, Paul also writes in Colossians 3, 18 and 19, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. There's this mutual, self-sacrificial relationship that Allison was talking about. Um, and the instruction to Christians in the early church, again, harmonized with all that was set before through the covenants and through creation. 
So when God's authority and the authority of Scripture is lived out, our marriages are going to be based not on our own idea of what love is, but on what God's love is for us. And our marriages are going to be an overflowing of the love that God has already shown to us. Now, I know we don't live that out perfectly. We don't live that out perfectly. But that's kind of the trajectory we want to be on here, right? It's a trajectory thing. It's not, nobody, none of us have arrived. None of us have a perfect marriage. None of us can look at this and say, I've always been that way, right? Um, we are all honest with ourselves in this and say we have room to grow and better understand God's word in our lives in the area of marriage. So um, our marriages, though, uh, under God's authority, they're going to be based on a mutual submission and a humility. And, and I want to remind you here, because uh, I've, I've heard people misread the Genesis passage as well when it comes to Adam and Eve. Um, Adam and Eve were equal before sin entered the world. Adam and Eve were equal. They were both there together, male and female. He created them. They were made uh, as two unique things to fulfill something unique together. Uh, that does not happen without Adam or without Eve. And so before God, and, and this is also affirmed in the New Creation, in the New Testament, um, in the family of Jesus, it's not like men lord over women or women lord over men. There's an equality there. And so this mutual submission we're talking about in the New Testament, this love comes not from a place of thinking oneself superior of or lording over another person. And that's really important. Rather, it comes from a sense that, Allison, you are fearfully and wonderfully made just as much as God has fearfully and wonderfully made me. Uh, in front of Christ, we are of equal value. We are of equal importance. God loves us equally and unconditionally. And that is the same sort of love that we want to reflect in our marriages uh, and in our relationships um, as well. So when we understand God's authority in this area, when we live accordingly, our marriages will be honored as something holy and sacred. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Again, God is the one judging the sins, right? Our marriages are to show God's design and our set-apartness from the world. And again, in a great, in a great perfect world, all, all Christian marriages would reflect God and his love for God's people in the church. Um, every healthy Christian relationship would reflect God's love uh, and his love for his people and his church. And that's the trajectory, again, that we want to be on. And I do think this is an area that Christianity has become blurred in our country and in our culture, at least. It's become blurred with the culture that we live in, and there's a lot of confusion, and there's not as much of an emphasis on this as maybe there used to be um, in times gone by. So I think it's something we can all improve on in our understanding as we try to live our lives in a way that is honoring to God's word and his life for us. Mm-hmm. So, as I've mentioned, our culture has very different views today on what marriage means, and even on sexuality, and as I mentioned, next week we're going to be talking more on sexuality, but today we're going to stick with some other challenges that face with living out um, the biblical view of marriage, and in our reading today, it did touch on the idea, uh, the topic of divorce, and I know that divorce has touched many of you. Um, I, some of you may be divorced, uh, be remarried, come from families where divorce has taken place. And so I just want to touch on that briefly um, because I know there could be guilt or shame or questioning on, on those decisions. And I don't think anyone goes into marriage thinking that divorce would be the end result. But then something happens and it leads to a place of wondering if divorce is the best option. And um, in scripture, there are 
areas where it does permit divorce. And so what does, what does scripture say about that? Well, divorce is permitted in cases of adultery or sexual immorality. This was in the law of Moses. Um, actually, back in that time in the law of Moses, if you were caught in adultery, you would just be put to death, um, which is terrible. But um, in the New Testament, Jesus talks about um, adultery and sexual immorality being grounds for divorce. Um, as we read in our Matthew passage, the word sexual immorality, it has a long list of things that can contribute to that, which Andrew is going to talk more about next week in his sermon. But divorce is also permitted in situations when you may have an unbelieving spouse. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, it talks about how it is permissible to divorce your spouse um, if you become a believer, but your spouse chooses not to do that. Um, but it also talks about that there's so much value in remaining in that marriage, um, even though your spouse may not believe, because it could leave, lead the unbelieving spouse to, to Christ. Um, but it says that if you do decide to divorce, you should do it peacefully. And then lastly um, is what Moses and Jesus referred to as hardness of heart. Now, hardness of heart is a very open-ended phrase, but I think the best way to look at it is um, what's the opposite of agape love? Um, if agape love is self-sacrificial love, then um, the opposite of that would be a selfishness in a marriage. And so in Proverbs 4.23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So what Jesus is saying is that when it comes to ending marriage, it comes to an issue of the heart. Um, and what does that mean? What, do, what qualifies as hardness of heart? And I don't think we can truly put a right or a wrong list here, because what it really comes down to is, are we loving one another with this self-sacrificial agape love of God, or aren't we? Um, is pornography involved? Is physical or verbal abuse involved? Is there trauma in the marriage? A lack of communication, not providing for one another. There are all forms of hardness of heart. And so um, divorce is not God's first choice, um, which is why in Genesis and again in Matthew, it says that the husband and wife are to become one flesh and what God has joined together, we should not separate. But I want you to know that there are permissible grounds for divorce for the right reason. And um, we as the church, we are not good at helping with struggling marriages. Um, when people come together for the forming of marriage, it's a big celebration, usually in the church, grounded in faith, um, giving their lives to the Lord. But then when marriages begin to struggle and things get rocky or divorce comes, it seems to happen outside the walls of the church. And I think this should be a wake-up call to us as the church that um, we need to have an agape love for one another as members of the body of Christ. And we are to love and show care and compassion no matter what the situation may be in somebody's marriage. And we should be there for people who may be struggling with that. And if you are struggling in that, know that there are people in the body of Christ that you can come to to talk about that with, such as like Pastor Andrew or myself. Um, we've actually spent some time doing marriage counseling and marriage ministry with um, premarital couples, and that's something that we can do for people who are married now. Um, and so when you take that struggling marriage to the Lord and 
and really weigh options, you may find that divorce is the best option when it's done peacefully, when surrounded by the church and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and surrounded by um, care and compassion within the church instead of gossip or shame or division. Yes. Yeah, and I think that touches on something really important um, because this is one of those areas where we, you know, in our relationships, I don't think any of us has ever felt, we've never gone, we haven't lived our life without some sort of shame or remorse in our relationships, right? Like, there's always something that we can go back to and say, I wish I would have done that better. Whether we've stayed in the marriage, whether we've had divorces, whether we've had conflict that never got resolved, um, this, is an, this is one of those things on a big picture that we know reflects a sinful and a broken world, and we sometimes feel that brokenness and sometimes that sin really intimately, right? Uh, and we can look back and we can say, man, I, I wish that had gone differently. I'm sorry for that. And so um, ultimately here, like there are thousands of ways that we can work against God's design for marriage and sexuality in our lives. There are thousands of ways uh, that we can work against God and our sexuality, how we use that sexuality outside the confines of marriage, how we treat each other inside and outside of marriage can work against God's design for us, um, and in how we fuel and feed a culture that really doesn't care what we think, they just want to sell us stuff. Like, how we engage with that can also be destructive to the life that God has for us. And there's so many ways that we miss the mark. And our goal up here, whether you're married or unmarried, long-time married or recently divorced or remarried, whatever the case is, our goal is not to put heap guilt and shame on you this morning. It's to know this, that we have a very loving and forgiving God. Somebody who forgives uh, our sins in the areas of relationships and outside of the areas of relationships. We have a God who uh, promises when, that when we approach him and confess our sins, he will be faithful and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's why we say these words when we come together as a church before we celebrate communion and at other times. The reality is we have all done things to undermine God's truth and we've all fallen short. So if, if we're going to group this sanctuary into sinners and not sinners, we're all in the sinners category, right? And that, that applies to our relationships too. But like with all hard topics, we admit that we have not lived it out perfectly and I want you to know that there is grace and forgiveness. And again, this is, about, um, this is about today living with a new reality of God's grace and forgiveness to influence us moving forward. It's not about us necessarily being stuck in the past and experiencing a guilt or shame that isn't from God because we can often carry those things with us throughout our lives as well. So there's an opportunity now in our relationships, wherever you are at, wherever you have been at in the past, you have an invitation today to hold marriage in honor. You have an invitation to love each other and submit to one another and love each other with the agape love that God has loved us with and demonstrated through Jesus Christ. And to not give into the temptations to live differently or to believe otherwise or to go down destructive paths which will undermine and hurt our relationships. The gospel today is that Jesus invites us all no matter where we're at, in all areas of our lives, to surrender to him. His death on the cross was about forgiveness, but it was also about redemption. And sometimes, even in our relationships, once we experience God's forgiveness, he will work redemption. He will bring something better than what we experienced before. He will take something that we think is lost, and he will redeem it. 
And friends, that is the gospel for all of our lives. What the enemy wanted to be lost in sin, God has redeemed through Jesus Christ. So any past relationships you have that need forgiveness and redemption, God is big enough to handle that. And he gives that freely. Any marriages that need transformation and redemption, God has that for you. He can give that freely. And we invite you and we encourage you to experience that life in Christ. So we don't want to be a people, a God, we don't want to be a people or a church that just settles for the world's ways or settles for the brokenness that we see in the culture around us. We want to be a people of grace. And like Allison said, we want to be a community where we can work through these things together and show each other the same camaraderie and kinship and love of Christ that we have experienced through Jesus' death and resurrection. So I think that's where we want to leave this conversation today. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. Um, and Lord, we, uh, first of all, Lord, we just confess that we don't have it all together. Uh, we confess that we don't always know your truth. We confess that um, we often know what is true and good and we don't follow it. And Lord, in our humility and in our brokenness, would you meet us there by your grace? I pray, Lord, that you would um, offer us uh, your free grace today. May we put our faith in you and experience that grace. Uh, may we understand on a deep level that we have forgiveness, no matter where in our lives that we have fallen short. And Lord, would you lead us in a path of redemption, a path of newness of life, a path of abundant life that you promise for all who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, may our witness in and through this um, be something that strengthens this church community. May it be something that strengthens uh, the community that we live in. May it be something that strengthens this culture and this country. May your people, Lord, understand and accept what agape love is and show it to each other. We pray all this in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.